This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, guilty on all counts for Nexium leader Keith Ranieri. We hear from cult expert Rick Ross. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, we chat with best-selling author Charles Fishman about his new book, One Giant Leap. Plus, the search continues for extraterrestrial life, or at least the planets that might harbor it. We're joined by Dr. Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. His crimes and the crimes of his co-conspirators ruined marriages, careers, fortunes, and lives. Big news yesterday out of uh, Brooklyn, New York. After a six-week trial, Keith Ranieri was found guilty of all charges, including sex trafficking, child pornography, racketeering, and others. In fact, could face life in prison. Now, he was the leader of something called Nexium which was billed as a marketing organization, an organization that sold executive success. But what this was, was a cult, specifically a sex cult with him at the top. And they got him. Like I say, he may face life in prison. We'll find out his sentence in September. But very significant news. Someone who has been watching all of this very closely, in fact, has worked with a number of the victims of Keith Randieri, in fact, testified at this trial. Very pleased to welcome to the program Rick Ross. He is a cult expert, the director of the Cult Education Institute, author of the book Cults Inside and Out. Rick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Obviously, you've been uh, very close to this case, uh, speaking with a number of uh, the victims of Keith Ranier. You testified at this trial. You know, give me everything you, you've learned about Keith and about Nexium. I mean, how does it compare to other cults, other cult leaders that you've studied? Well, I think Keith Ranieri was a very extreme cult leader, and this situation escalated over a period of years. I first became aware of him in like 2002, 2003, and I published papers by a clinical psychologist and a forensic psychiatrist analyzing his training and how it mirrored what can be seen as thought reform or coercive persuasion. To gain undue influence. Ranieri sued me and he continued that litigation for 14 years until it was dismissed by a federal judge in New Jersey. And uh, he had sued many people. I mean, he sued people to keep them quiet, to gag them, to retaliate when people left the group. Uh, and his behavior escalated. I mean, initially, I had heard rumors about a harem of women that he had and that he lived with. Uh, but then that escalated to this thing known as DOS, or The Vow, which was an internal group composed of women that became his sex slaves and were branded physically with a cauterizing iron with his initials. Yeah. Uh, these poor women were put through uh, untold hours upon hours of training, and they were broken down over a period of months or years 
until they became so docile and submissive that he could, uh, through his surrogates, tell them to do anything. And that's when things became so dark and so many people were hurt by this man who many people believe could be a psychopath. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that, I don't think that would surprise a lot of people. It's interesting because when we think of cults, maybe we tend to associate cults with religion or cult leaders who, who portray themselves as, as gods or prophets. Nexium seemed different in the sense that this was portrayed as um, a business, kind of a, a self-help, but a marketing kind of business. He was selling executive success. Is, is that unusual when we, we see this, this kind of, a, of an organization or this kind of a leader? No, I think that there are there are many groups called uh, destructive cults that are built around a spiritual claim or religious claim, but there are many that are not. They can be built around martial arts, meditation, yoga. In this case, the group was a privately owned seminar selling company that extolled its training as the key to executive success. And in fact, originally it was called Executive Success Programs and then rebranded as Nexium after an article came out in Forbes magazine, which I participated in, in which Ranieri made the cover of Forbes as the strangest executive coach. And it was a very negative article in which Edgar Bronfman Sr., the multi-billionaire who died not long ago, uh, that controlled the Seagram's company, uh, that he called Ranieri a cult leader. And he had taken an actual course. And then his daughters... Sarah Bronfman and Claire Bronfman both became involved, and from that point forward, Ranieri's bank was the Bronfman. They enabled him, they paid his bills, they helped him to harass people. Uh, They were the fuel in his tank that propelled him forward for years without the money from the Bronfman, and they gave him easily over a hundred, maybe $200 million over a period of years, he would not have been able to hurt the people that he did hurt. And Claire Bronfman, who has been uh, indicted and who has pled guilty uh, and has probably a plea deal in place where she will serve at least two years in prison, but could be more. I, I think she was very fortunate to plea out in the deal that she got because she really was his key enabler. And that's what seems so strange to so many people, Rick, about this case. So you got people like Claire Bronfman, uh, Allison Mack, uh, people who are successful, people who are well-known, people who have a, a lot of money. Uh, and it seems counterintuitive, maybe in a way, that well, well, how would people like this get sucked into something like Nexium? What is it that, that they feel as though they're lacking in their lives? How, how is uh, someone like Keith Ranieri attracting people like this to, to his group? Well, it's a classic bait-and-switch con. I mean, Ranieri would, you know, say, look, my training is the magic silver bullet that will cure all your problems, whatever they are. He called it rational inquiry, his philosophy, which was a mix of Ayn Rand, Scientology, Amway, Landmark Education, formerly known as EST, Earhart Seminars Training that presents the forum, and quite a bit of what's called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is a manipulative technique of controlling and, and influencing people. And no one knew what they were signing up for. I mean, when these people got involved, 
they were introduced typically to uh, Nexium by someone they knew. For example, Allison Mack, I think, was brought in by the actress Kristen Krupp, who also was in Smallville with her for 11 years. And uh, these were people that they had vulnerabilities. They may have been going through a bad patch. Uh, they Or Keith Raniere, the one thing that he was intelligent about, and arguably a savant at, was figuring out people's weaknesses. He would find weaknesses, and we all have them, and he would drill down into a weakness that someone had, and then he would use that and exploit that and leverage that to gain control over them. And he would use one person to help him get control over another person. I mean, that's that was his whole life. I mean, the guy never really had a real job. His, his job coming out of a Rensselaer Polytechnic, uh, a college in Troy, New York, was basically, first he was an MLM guy. Uh, he had an MLM that failed called Consumer Byline. It was sued out of existence by various state attorney generals. And then after that, he, he started up this whole thing. And he had Nancy Salzman, a registered nurse who knew neurolinguistic programming and hypnosis, and she helped him to structure all of this. And, uh, you know, it just escalated on and on, and it got more and more uh, nefarious, more dark. I mean, it seemed like he could never get enough money, power, or sex. Which obviously, yeah, that was that was what was driving him, right? I mean, that that was his modus operandi. That that this is what he wanted or felt that he needed, and uh, he was very good at figuring out ways of of how to get it. Well, Keith Raniere, in my opinion, will undoubtedly go into the pantheon of cult leaders that we talk about. He will be cited as an example, a, a, a kind of. Uh, uh, you know, icon of of destructive cult leaders. Yeah. Uh, so we, we'll talk about people like David Koresh, Jim Jones, and we'll also talk about Keith Raniere, the seminar-selling guru that became a, quote, sex cult leader and that, that had so much power over so many people and that so many of them were so rich and famous. I mean, this guy really... Uh, he, he made a mark, and it wasn't the mark that he thought he'd make, but, I mean, that was the mark he made. And, uh, you know, I, I, seeing him in court was bizarre because, you know, for 14 years I was the defendant and he was the litigant. Yeah. And then I was on the witness stand and I looked at him and identified him for the court. And uh, for the first time he looked at me uh, in a different way than I had ever met with him before, and I had met with him on occasion before, and we had, dis we had had fairly lengthy conversation. And, uh, and he looked uh, different. He looked, uh, quite frankly, whooped, and uh, he was uh, kind of red-faced, embarrassed, and he was the defendant. I, I don't know what he thought would happen in this trial, but at the end, I mean, the jury wasn't even out five hours because... Uh, they had lunch, so it seemed like his lawyer could not convince them of anything, and that the right. jury basically understood the prosecution's case and saw that he was guilty on every count. Well, and yeah, which was so encouraging yesterday. I mean, it, it, we, we shouldn't think, though, that that was inevitable, as overwhelming as this verdict was, and, and some very serious charges could put him in prison for life. 
you know, it, it could have gone a, a, a different way, right? It wasn't inevitable that he was going to find himself in that position. It can be very difficult to bring down people like this, can it? Well, the truth is that there were victims that went to authorities in Albany and upstate New York for years, including people that uh, had been sexually abused, labor violations, IRS uh, violations, money laundering, all of the charges that he eventually would be held accountable for in Brooklyn by the prosecutors there in that district. Uh, the people in Albany and in upstate New York have a lot to answer for. That is, why didn't they prosecute him earlier? And the Albany Times Union, the local newspaper in Albany, has certainly raised this question as well. And I think there's going to be an accounting for why they didn't stop this guy a lot sooner. And, and quite frankly, they allowed him to hurt many more people because they didn't stop him sooner. And, and I think that's an issue. I think what finally happened is very brave people, brave women specifically, um, Tony Natale, his former girlfriend that he terrorized for 20 years. He killed her dog. He broke, had her house broken into. Uh, he bankrupted her. He bankrupted her family. He stalked her. Uh, she was in, in the court courtroom when I testified. I could see her in the back row. Uh, she bravely stood up against him. But most of all, it was Catherine Oxenberg, the actress from Dynasty in the 1980s. Uh, she tried to get her daughter, India Oxenberg, out in a very quiet, low-profile way. Catherine would call me. we talk about it. I would coach her. Her desire was to get India, her daughter, out of this group without anybody uh understanding what was going on. She didn't want the attention. But when Keith Ranieri made it clear that he would never let her daughter go, and when she realized that her daughter was going to be branded as a sex slave, and in fact her daughter was branded, uh, she became uh, not, o- not only ter- terrified about her daughter's safety, but furious that this man was doing this to her daughter. And she went to war. And she was the one who brought media attention, uh, political attention to Keith Raniere because of her celebrity status and because of her connections. She was able to turn the, the sword, uh, that is the celebrity sword that Raniere had used to conquer people, and she used it to bring him down. Well, and that's what happened, as uh, one of the um, ex-girlfriends of Keith said, the good guys won. And I guess that's the takeaway here. So many victims, obviously, Rick, and uh, so many lives uh, forever changed. But we got them, right? And uh, I guess that's that's the good news here this week. Yes, and I'm, I, I think that uh, the end of Nexium is, is something that uh, gives me some sense of peace for the 14 years that I spent in court with this guy. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the whole point was to keep the papers of the doctors online so that people could understand how he manipulated uh, people psychologically and emotionally through his training. He sued me to try and bring those papers off, uh, off the web. He didn't want people to have access to them. But they never stopped uh, being in the archive of culteducation.com in the Nexium section. Uh, and, uh, of course, that infuriated him, but, uh, but I, I feel like 
it, it was a fight worth fighting, yeah. and that now he is where he belongs, and and he will be, I think, warehoused for the foreseeable future. Let's hope so. Uh, again, culteducation.com, Rick. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. That is Rick Ross. He is the executive director of the Cult Education Institute, author of the book Cults Inside Out, how people get in and can get out. As mentioned, a very close link to what's going on here. Testified at this trial, which culminated yesterday. Guilty on all counts. Keith Ranieri facing up to life in prison. will learn his sentence in September. July 20th, a mark the 50th anniversary of this iconic moment. Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man. Well, those are the famous words. What's kind of funny is that uh, Walter Cronkite actually didn't hear what the, the words were. He, uh, he didn't hear that last part. One giant leap were the words, and that is the name of a new book by best-selling author Charles Fishman, who joins us on the line here this afternoon. Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. Happy to be with you. Well, and look, this is such a great story. I mean, it's one of the most iconic moments of the 20th century. And it's interesting, too, and you kind of make the argument that the moon landing in the Apollo program has sort of become its own thing. I mean, it was part of the Cold War. It was certainly part of the 60s. But it almost it transcends both of those things, doesn't it? Well, I, I think we have a sense of, of how long-lasting it's going to be. We, we don't even... It, it was an iconic sort of ribbon running through the 60s, just like civil rights and uh, the feminist movement and the Vietnam War. But, but we don't think of it as part of that blend. It, is, it kind of stands out on its own. It is, to be honest, I, 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 I quote some folks in the book, I think we, we will look back as human beings 500 years from now when, when all the rest of the, 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 the 20th century has washed away. That will still be part of human storytelling because it was the first moment when, when human space travel became you know, vivid and real. We were, we were off to another place. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I mean, I, I guess, and, and you make the argument, the uh, Apollo program and the moon landing, was its legacy is about more than just space travel. But I think if you were to look narrowly as space travel, or if you ask the people, of 1969, what they thought space travel would look like 50 years later. They might give a very different answer from from what we have today. Has the idea of space travel, conquering the stars, if you will, has that stalled? Well, look, (laughs) uh, I think if you asked people in 1969 what would happen, of course they would imagine that we would be (laughs) zooming around like the Jetsons or like Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And and we aren't. the moon landings had an incredible impact back back on Earth. Excuse me. They they um they they really helped usher in the digital revolution. You know yeah. we we can hold all access to human knowledge in our hand. There's something a little Star Trekky about that. But right this minute, literally, even as we're celebrating the 50th anniversary, we are we are entering another space age, another space revolution, which is Elon Musk and SpaceX, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin. Those guys are trying to create reliable, safe, inexpensive space travel like, you know, Southwest Airlines, like United, like American. 
And if they can do that, and, and it sure looks like they will be able to there, they are doing it without people aboard at the moment with incredible dependability and skill and technology, we will have a zero-gravity economy shortly, the way we have a digital economy or the way we have an, avi- an aviation economy. I think 20 years from now, we will look back at this anniversary and say, just as we were trying to understand the impact of Apollo, a whole new era was being born. Well, it was, and it was a digital era, and I mean, that's such a remarkable part of the story, are the uh, incredible advances that were made in computing as, as a result of this mission, that it, it very much, as, as you argue, paved the way for the digital world that we live in today. Look, not, not, when Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, it was impossible. There was no rocket ship that, that could fly to the moon, there was no spaceship that could land on the moon, no space suits, no space food, and there was no computer small enough and fast enough to fly to the moon. In that era, a small computer was four refrigerators lined up next to each other. That was how yeah, big it was. With the punch cards. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You couldn't even fly one refrigerator to the moon. It weighed too much and took up too much space. And so the, the folks at MIT literally had to invent modern computing. They had to create a computer. It was, it was no bigger than a, than a, uh, uh, you know, no bigger than a big stereo tuner is today. They had to create a very small, very fast computer. It was, in fact, the smallest and fastest computer of its era. And and having to do that on a deadline, they use technology that has now rippled out into the rest of the world that didn't exist when, when, when the moon race started. And so Apollo really laid the foundation. You can trace your, the iPhone you hold in your hand back to the, the race to the moon and the, and the, and the Apollo era. And there was no getting there without it, right? And I mean, there, <laughs> this had to be reliable, too. There were a lot of ways things could have gone sideways right up until the last second. And it all came down to this, this remarkable computer, didn't it? Well, the, the, the computer, uh, uh, there's a lot of physics involved in flying and a lot of math involving in, involved in flying in three dimensions. And uh, you absolutely, the, human beings could not have done the calculations quick enough to land safely on the moon. In fact, the computer was in charge of the spaceship and in charge of controlling the engines, controlling the thrusters. Neil Armstrong was sort of picking the positioning there at the last minute, but, but even he was talking to the computer and the computer was, was talking to all the systems in the spacecraft. No, you couldn't have done it. The really remarkable thing, Rob, about that computer was that it was the most advanced computer of its day but it was way out in front of our ability to make computer technology. And so every wire in the memory and circuitry of that computer was hand-woven by a group of women in a factory in Waltham, Massachusetts. Raytheon hired former textile workers to weave the circuitry of the computer by hand. It was the only way to do it. And every single wire had to be in exactly the right spot or the computer wouldn't work right. So their work was in some ways as heroic and demanding as the astronauts. They had to be perfect. They did. And it's, and it's funny. I think there's one anecdote you tell in the book where the concept of software was so new and so radical that people weren't even sure how to spell it. No, it was, it was, there, were, there, there was a surprise a day, and this is a small one, but, but in the middle of reporting and researching the book, I discovered 
software, as in computer software, spelled all over the place, S-O-F-T-W-E-A-R, like it was apparel. Right. And, and you know what? Right up into the 1970s, even uh, uh, companies advertising for software engineers, digital computers spelled it S-O-F-T-W-E-A-R, the New York Times had stories in the early 1970s in which they spelled it both ways. And so that's just a reminder that this kind of computer technology and programming that really runs the world, right? People mm-hmm. don't even take a, a walk without their digital devices anymore. It was all new in that era. And we weren't using this brand new computer to do something like run a chemical factory or run the elevators in a, in a skyscraper. We were using that computer technology to do the hardest thing humans had ever done, fly to the moon. So that really, I think, established culturally and in people's minds, wow, computers can really be something valuable. If it's good enough, if it's reliable enough to fly us to the moon, I guess we can run our chemical factory with it. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's a great way, I think, of introducing people to what I think maybe you'll call the unsung heroes of this. We know the astronauts, and obviously people know the role JFK played in, in spurring all of this, but you know people like Doc Draper and, and Bill Tyndall and, and these, these young 20-somethings who are writing these computer programs, there's no going to the moon without people like this. No, in, in in fact, the 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 guy who wrote the computer program that flew the astronauts from orbit to the moon was was five years out of college. He walked into MIT looking for a job. He gra- he was a math major who who had graduated from Boston University, and they hired him right in the door. He'd never written a computer program. Five years later, he had written the most important computer program in the history of computer programming, and and then there are people. Doc Draper, Charles Charles Stark Draper, ran the operation at MIT. He's a name everybody should know that no one knows. He invented, he perfected inertial navigation. He created the idea of navigating by keeping track of every motion of the, the ship or the submarine or the airplane or the spaceship that you're in. And, and keeping track of where you were that way. No compass, no GPS. And that, in fact, is the way nuclear submarines navigate. You needed inertial navigation to fly in space with human beings. You couldn't do it otherwise. And, and he's the one who created it. And so there are, there are these wonderful characters hidden sort of behind the scenes. The, the astronauts deserve all the credit they get. But but my goal as the 50th anniversary came along was to say, you know, back on Earth, 410,000 people, almost half a million people were required just to get six missions to land on the moon. And so I wanted, I wanted to understand what, what were those 410,000 people doing? And it turns out they were working really hard. They were. Uh, we mentioned JFK, and it, it kind of starts with him in a lot of ways, and it is certainly part of his legacy. I guess that's the, the mark of a great politician is that you're able to rally people around a cause that maybe you yourself aren't totally convinced of. Because as you reveal in the book, he wasn't sold that it was doable or even the right thing to do. You know, when he launched the mission to the moon, when he launched, when he rallied Americans and NASA to go to the moon in May 1961, he was absolutely convinced it was the right thing to do. And he was doing it as part of the Cold War. There's no question about that. Kennedy was our poet of space travel. If you read his speeches, 
they are incredibly eloquent explanations of why human beings should go to space, what we will do there, and what we will get from it. He, he himself was giving those speeches, but he wasn't always convinced that we needed to do it with the intensity we were doing it in order to beat the Russians. And so one of the things I discovered in my reporting, which is really not the conventional wisdom, is in the fall of 63, literally just weeks before he was assassinated, it was clear that he was beginning to think this was too expensive. It wasn't going to happen while he was president. July 1969, even if he'd gotten a second term, survived and gotten a second term, he would have been months out of the presidency. And he just thought, my goodness, we're beating the Russians now. I don't need to beat them to the moon. I'm beating them where we are now. Maybe I don't need to spend all this money on this. As it turned out, you know, we we know how that that sort of you know alternative history is a little uh, is really just a, a, a game for us to exercise our imaginations. His assassination, which was devastating, also locked in the politics of going to the moon. Then the Apollo mission became not just a mission for its own original reasons, but a tribute to the president who had launched that mission and and was then cut down. And so, in fact, his assassination sort of ensured that Americans would go to the moon. It kind of locked in the, the, the politics of that and, and made it possible for, for, for it to just keep going no matter what. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, even if, it, even if the Russians had got there first, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that we'd still be talking about a Soviet Union that exists in, in 2019 or that the Cold War would have gone any differently. That, that's probably overstating the, the significance of all of this. You know the Russians. The Russians were first to a lot of things. They mm-hmm. were they were first. They launched the first spacecraft. They launched the first astronaut. They launched the first mission to the moon, unmanned. They launched the first woman to space, and and I did have this moment, which, which I found quite sort of unsettling, of imagining what would have happened if the first flag raised on the moon ha- had been the hammer and sickle, the red. Russian flag, which really stood for the opposite of what the American flag stands for, right? Yeah. That's authoritarianism. That's, you know, s- submitting the individual to the will of the state. I don't think that would have been a good symbol at all back on Earth. I think the fact that the American flag, which stands for American values, even if we don't execute those values perfectly every time, is is a much different symbol. No, it, the Russians were first in everything else, and it didn't it didn't it didn't save the Soviet Union. The Cold War would not have come out differently if the Russians had somehow made it to the moon before we did. But the symbolism of the hammer and sickle on the moon and not the American flag on the moon, I, even, even now that, that makes me a little queasy, a little uneasy. I am, I am glad that the first people to, uh, to land on the moon left a plaque that said, we came in peace for all mankind. No. I don't think that's the wording the Russians would have used. No, I, I somehow doubt it. Uh, it is interesting, too, and it's encouraging, I think, Charles. I mean, not only is there an amount, immense amount of attention on, on the book, but, I mean, around the anniversary itself, I think July 20th, next month, it's, it is going to be a big deal because this still does matter to a lot of people, including a whole lot of people, myself included, who were not even born at the time. Seventy percent of the people in the United States and Canada right now, alive right now, weren't alive when we landed on the moon the first time where they were younger than five. So for 70% of, of the people alive in, in, in the U.S. and Canada now, it's as remote as World War I was to us when we were in high school, sort of, sort of dim, like, uh, whatever, yeah, I've seen the picture of the guy standing by the flag. And, and so I think the, the 50th anniversary 
is important in part because this was, this is one of the great achievements of humanity. When you study that 10-year period that took us to the moon, you know, we, 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 we designed General Motors moon dune buggies and electric dune buggies, and we flew them to the moon, and then the astronauts got out of their spaceship and drove around. That is just really sort of, it's, it's both kicky, it's kind of amazing, but it is also an incredible achievement. And so it's worth learning the some of the small stories which are so engaging and so amazing what people what people were able to accomplish that's kind of inspiring but there's this larger picture which is going to the moon was impossible when kennedy said let's do it in 1961 it was literally impossible mm-hmm. and 8 years later it was done it's a reminder that we can do incredible things we can do things that are in fact out of reach with inspiration and good leadership. And and one of the fun things was to talk to the people who are still alive, who did the work necessary to get us to the moon, who built the lunar module, who designed and built that pioneering computer. And, you know, they tell you they were ordinary people who, because of the way they were led and because of the nature of the mission, were able to do extraordinary work. And so that's, I, I, I really find that heartening and also also inspiring. Yeah, well, and that's certainly a great legacy, then, too, I would argue. Uh, the book is called One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. Charles Fishman, uh, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been great. Rob, thanks for having me. All right, that is Charles Fishman, best-selling author, his new book, One Giant Leap. Uh, and it is a remarkable story. And I think a lot that you probably don't know about the Apollo Project that you're going to learn in this book. Well, as we talk about space, I wanted to get to these uh, next two stories. Now, this was maybe uh, somewhat discouraging, but uh, I, I think it is encouraging that the effort continues. A uh, story here from The Independent. Astronomers say they are releasing the biggest set of data ever made public in the search for alien life. Researchers from Breakthrough Listen say it has completed the most comprehensive and sensitive search for signatures of alien technology ever performed. It will release the data from its search in the hope that others might be able to find information inside of it. Because unfortunately, at first glance, it seems awfully quiet out there. But there may be more to it than we realize. Now, in terms of where we ought to be looking, or listening rather, we've got an interesting story this week. And how remarkable it is, our ability now to, to find and detect Earth-like planets. And we're finding more and more of them. Story this week, uh, this is from National Geographic. A tiny old star just 12 light years away might host two temperate, rocky planets. If confirmed, both are nearly identical to Earth and mass, and both planets are in orbit that could allow liquid water to trickle and puddle on their surfaces. Uh, the uh, host known as uh, Tea Garden Star, at least 8 billion years old, twice the age of our sun. So that would mean the planets uh, are pretty old. So is this maybe where we uh, want to concentrate our efforts? I, I think these efforts do go hand in hand trying to find Earth-like planets, and then trying to find where to focus on um, our listening efforts as we try to find life elsewhere uh, in our galaxy, in our universe. Well, joining us to talk about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Dr. Seth Shostak is a senior astronomer and institute fellow at the SETI Institute. He is host of Big Picture Science, also author of the book Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Dr. Shostak, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much, Rob. Well, let's talk about this data then uh, that was released this week. And, and I guess it, on the surface, as I say, it does seem kind of quiet out there, maybe a little disappointing. But what, what do you make of it? 
Well, this is, as they claim, a huge amount of data. They surveyed uh, the vicinities of roughly 1,300 nearby star systems. They were all within about 160 light years. I mean, that would be a long drive in your car, but 160 light years from an astronomical perspective is kind of next door. 1,300 is a big number. There are more than 1,000 of these planets. It's more than any previous search. And uh, so far, uh, the aliens seem a little bit coy. This was done by the University of California at Berkeley, by the way, the mm-hmm. Breakthrough Listen Project over there. And uh, they're, they're very careful about this. It's, a, it's good work. The fact that they didn't turn up ET, as you say, Rob, disappointing. But personally, I'm not the least bit discouraged by that. And why do you say that? Well, it's because you've got to, you, you know, you've got to consider that there are a trillion, that's a million, million, a trillion planets, right, in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, that's a lot of planet pleasure. I mean, if you, if you made every planet the size of a marble, this would cover all of Calgary and more, you know, in marbles. <laughs> a lot of marbles. So, you know, there are a lot of planets. That's just our galaxy, by the way. And it's hard to believe that they're all just sterile, except for the Earth. I mean, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's even hard to believe that uh, all of them, yeah, some have life, but it's not very interesting life. Some of them must have something intelligent. But you can't just look at a thousand of those marbles, you know, uh, and, and, and think, oh, well, uh, gee, I didn't find any uh, Klingons. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you, you really need to look at a few million, I think, a few million. And uh, they're going to do that eventually, but uh, they haven't done it so far. Right. And it, be, it becomes a question that it, it seems very unlikely uh, that the rest of the uh, galaxy of the universe is, is barren. But uh, it, it could well be that life is common, but intelligent life is rare. I mean, a, a, a planet that looked like Earth looked 200 million years ago would still be uh, an amazing, amazing discovery. Well, that's right. I mean, you could have looked at Earth for life and, and maybe lots of aliens have because... You know, Earth, from their point of view, looks like these tea garden planets. You know, it has the right temperature range. Uh, you know, it's the right size. And if they're really sophisticated, one has to assume that some of these aliens are sophisticated. They would be able to know that we have, you know, atmosphere. We have liquid oceans. We have all the ingredients for that messy bit of chemistry we call life. All right. But they, they could have looked at it as long as they wanted. And all they would find is oxygen in the atmosphere, which means they're plants. But the first 80% of the history of life on Earth was all microscopic life. It was all sitting in the ocean, and it was microscopic. And really, microscopic life is okay, but if you invite it to your party, you know, they're not going to hold up their side of the conversation. So intelligence, as you say, might be very rare compared to life. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, these tear garden planets you mentioned are, you know, older than our own planets, and they've had plenty of time to develop, you know, life that's a little more interesting than microbes, maybe even clever, intelligent, transmitting life. Well, and, and does the search then for Earth-like planets, does that help give us an indication maybe then of, of where to focus these efforts? Well, it does. It does. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't get all that excited about that because, you know, certainly in the early days it was exciting. Oh, my God, you know. Earth-like plants, or maybe they're Earth-like. You don't even know if they're Earth-like. What you know is they're Earth-size, and you know that, well, you know, they're at the right distance from their, their sun so that they could have the kind of temperatures that would keep the water, if there is any water, from being perpetually frozen or boiling or whatever. That's all you know. You don't really know if they're Earth-like. You know they're Earth-size. But, you know, it, 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 it sure it helps, but it only really helps because it gives you confidence that if you found a couple of Earth-like planets 
then there must be many, many more. And what fraction of stars have an Earth-like planet? Nobody knows. The data are still a little bit rough, but it looks like maybe one in five, one in six of all stars in the cosmos might have a planet somewhat like the Earth. Well, that's an encouraging number. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the breakthrough, listen, Project, and, and what SETI does, I mean, wh- what are the, the potential telltale signs, then, that, that we're, we're scanning for, that we're listening for? What would be that evidence that we're trying to find? Well, it's actually somewhat analogous to trying to find your favorite uh, uh, talk show uh, uh, on the radio, <laughs> on your car radio, you know, driving around Alberta. I mean, you know, what do you do? You're, you're turning the knob. Well, I mean, you don't have knobs anymore, but there was a time... Uh, you, you turn in the knob, and, right. you know, you just get static and noise, and who knows what. And then you hear a squeal, and uh, it's not a local pig. It's, it's your favorite station. It's at one spot on the dial, you know, 670 kilohertz or 105.3 megahertz or wherever it is. It's at one spot on the dial. It occupies a small part of the radio spectrum to use all the Latinate words that scientists love to use. Okay, so that's what we do in SETI. We, we examine billions and billions of channels, right, and we look for uh, signals that are confined in frequency. They're just at a small part of the radio dial, and then we say, you know, that's not nature. That's got to be a transmitter. Well, and over the years, I mean, there was the story, of course, about the, the famous wow signal and, and other indications of maybe something where there's there's been some uh, uncertainty. I mean... I would think, or at least the layman might think, that, look, it's, it's going to be obvious when we find something, but uh, is, is it necessarily going to be obvious? Well, immediately obvious, you, anyway. Yeah, all you can say is if it's not the kind of signal you expect, if it's not the kind of signal that you built your equipment to find, you're probably not going to find it. I mean, yeah. that's always a possibility. It may be that, you know, you go uh, hunting for snipe in the forest, and because you don't really know what they look like, you know, you might miss them even if they are there. So it's, it's sure, it's possible that we're barking up the wrong tree. That's always possible. But on the other hand, that kind of argument isn't very useful because what are you going to do? Say, well, you know, Bob, I'm not going to uh, bark up the wrong tree. I'm just going to sit at home and forget about right. uh, any tree. So no, that's true. You might as well try to go with what you got. I mean, Yeah, and I just wonder, though, I mean, in terms of... You know, we think of that iconic moment in, in the movie Contact where, wow, holy crap, it's, it's them. I mean, is, is it going to be that kind of moment or is it going to be the sort of thing where, you know, we discover it days later after going back through, through the data? That depends on whose experiment you're talking about. The, the people at the Breakthrough Listen Project, in fact, do some tests right away, but they also go back and look later. And, of course, that requires that the aliens stay on the air. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe that depends on whether they get enough uh, commercial support or something. I don't know. But in any case, there there is that. Uh, But it isn't going to be like in contact in any event. In contact, what happens is Jodie Foster's looking bored with a pair of earphones on, and suddenly she hears something, right? And she jumps up and starts screaming. Okay, that would be really nifty. But we've had a couple of false alarms uh, in the past, and it doesn't work that way because you pick up a signal and, you know, the computer's doing all these kind of automatic tests, and then, uh, you know, eventually the computer throws up its computery hands and says, I don't know what this is. It's up to the humans to decide. So the humans get in the act, but it would take them days to convince themselves that it was for real and that it wasn't, uh, you know, a University of Alberta undergraduate prank or something like that. You'd have to, you'd have to convince yourself, and that would take mostly a week. So it's not quite like in the movies. I guess not. Nothing ever is. 
Uh, much more at SETI.org, also BigPictureScience.org. Dr. Shostak, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. My, my pleasure, Rob. All right, all the best. Uh, Seth Shostak, uh, Senior Astronomer, uh, Institute Fellow at the SETI Institute, uh, host of Big Picture Science, uh, a radio and science podcast uh, brought to you by the SETI Institute, BigPictureScience.org. So, it does seem quiet out there. Now, if you want, the Breakthrough Listen team released all of this data to the public, saying there could be a signal in the data that we didn't detect this time around, but others can look through it and see if we missed anything. So maybe you could be the one to find that uh, alien signal and be famous and make history. Or there are other questions, right? Uh, Either A, there's no one out there. Uh, B, we're not listening in the right way. Uh, C, maybe we missed our window. You know, talk about this uh, star where they found these Earth-like planets. That star is twice as old as our star. So maybe four billion years ago, there were all kinds of really super intelligent aliens. And maybe intelligent civilizations just find a way of bringing about their own demise. Maybe that's the story of the universe. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.